Welcome to Latin American Intersections, where we explore the intersection of business, geopolitics, and social impact in the Latin American and Caribbean region. Our team is here to bring you the insights you need on current events from leaders and experts in the public, private, academic, and civic sectors. Latin American Intersections is presented by Ozilold Group, a consultancy focused on stakeholder relations and alternative risk reduction, building collaborations across sectors and industries to improve outcomes for clients and communities. Please keep in mind that the opinions, ideas, and information discussed on this podcast are those of the individual host and guest and do not necessarily reflect the official stances of organizations they are affiliated with. Be sure to follow at LATAM Podcast on your social media, share an episode or two with your friends, and send us your questions about the region. And don't forget to rate us on any of your favorite podcast apps. All right, everyone, welcome back to Latin American Intersections. I have two of our favorite guests here, John Polga and Brian Fonseca. Uh, I'm not going to go over their pedigree uh, once again, since we've done that a couple of times now. Uh, and normally, our discussions have to do with Venezuela, and that is the case today as well. Amidst all of the, um, amidst the global pandemic, Uh, Venezuela has been in and out of the headlines um, on, for, for several reasons. And I think John is going to give us a nice little summary about all of those reasons. So, John, if you want to take it and, and tell us what's going on in Venezuela. I'd be happy to. Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation, Michael. Brian, great to reconnect with you as well. Uh, So a lot, is, a lot has gone on in Venezuela in the past 10 days. I think kind of really briefly to summarize, uh, last Wednesday, March 25th, uh, Nicolas Maduro called for dialogue with the political opposition in order to prepare a, a cooperative response to the, the, the pandemic, to COVID-19. Uh, and so that was, that was big news, right? Would... Would the government and the opposition actually cooperate in order to uh, deal with this, this massive threat? That immediately was, was blown off the front page on Thursday, on March 26th, when the U.S. government unsealed, or the Department of Justice unsealed indictments against uh, Nicolas Maduro, as well as 13 other government officials or government-connected Uh, individuals. Uh, essentially, they put a $25 million bounty on the head of Maduro and a total of $55 million worth of bounties across all 14 officials. Um, the uh, Attorney General William Barr called uh, the government the, quote, corrupt Venezuelan regime uh, and accused uh, prosecutors and the Attorney General in the United States, accused uh, Socialist Party boss Dios del Cabello uh, of conspiring with Colombian rebels and members of the military to flood the U.S. with cocaine and use the trade, drug trade as a weapon against America. 
I believe that this in 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 the unsealed indictment this dated back to to 2005. So this isn't something that is new. Oh, you know what? It's it's 15 million. I have to correct myself. 15 million dollars uh, on on Maduro, not 25 million. So excuse me for that for that error. Uh, the U.S. also classified, characterized the Venezuelan government as a narco dictatorship uh, and a sponsor of narco terrorism. Okay, so that was the big news, and then the U.S. State Department decided that it would try to outdo uh, the Department of Justice, and so early this week, uh, or was it over the weekend? I'm losing track of my dates proposed a framework for a democratic transition in Venezuela that would take uh, kind of bar uh, leaders and, and then eventually lead to uh, free and fair elections in the country, essentially building off of a framework that the opposition had proposed in Barbados and in Oslo during the peace talks in 2019. So it's kind of strange because this, this strategy proposed by the, by the State Department and by a special envoy, Elliot Abrams, seems to go against what the DOJ strategy was on seeing those indictments uh, the week before. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how those two, two ideas or two strategies might be compatible or, or incompatible. And then lastly, uh, on the night of April 1st, we're recording this on a Thursday, so that would be last night, Wednesday. President Trump uh, said he would basically double military assets in the Caribbean to bolster the drug fight against Nicolas Maduro and, and the, the Maduro indictment. Uh, basically, the U.S. is deploying uh, warships to the Caribbean and the Pacific, but essentially doing something that hasn't happened since about 1989 when uh, the U.S. invaded Panama to overthrow, uh, to overthrow Manuel Noriega, so uh, all of this, you know, is, is coming is coming very quickly and, and it's changing in real time. Uh, the relationship between the government in Venezuela and the opposition in Venezuela, as well as probably deepening the divide between the Venezuelan government and the and the U.S. government. Wow, that's a lot all in uh, all in one summary. <laughs> that's that's a lot in the last week. Yeah, um, what else? Eight eight days worth of worth of news there. So, and if if I can make make some some um, important additions, there, there's also a really important global uh, context that all of this is is occurring in. One, as John alluded to, and Mike, you alluded to in your your opening, uh, there's a global pandemic. Um, that is starting to uh, make itself very well known in this hemisphere, or, or at least in Latin America and the Caribbean. The United States has been grappling with it for, for some time now, but you now have uh, cases of COVID-19 um, in every country in, in the Americas. Um, and that includes yeah. Venezuela as well. So that's one. Uh, two, you also have a, uh, an oil price war going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia. It is absolutely hurting Venezuela in two. And so there's a couple other things yes. going on in the global context that are adding, and in my opinion, um, likely um, you know, inspiring some of the timing of U.S. policy overtures in the last week. And so, I mean, you have a, a Nicolas Maduro that maybe some see, you know, perceive as essentially staring down the barrel of a gun, 
because if if um if if the the global if, if sort of COVID nineteen um you know really uh havoc in Venezuela um you know that could be that could be the end of of uh you know of the regime um and so maybe uh the idea is offering the off the off ramp now um you know is is part as part of this uh this global context hmm. so um as you mentioned, Brian, there is a lot of uh, global context here, especially the pandemic. I know that's the biggest thing on everybody's minds. And the fact that Venezuela has already been um, experiencing its own health crisis due to the economic impacts that it's felt for the last uh, several years, especially um, the, you know, the limitations that they have in terms of um, medical equipment, etc., um, you know, that, that begs the question, like how much of an impact will COVID-19 have in there? Right. And the kinds of ripple effects that it might have on some of this other policy that's going on. Yes. Um, let me circle back to John for a second here. Um, you mentioned the, you know, we kind of have DOJ and, and DOS department of justice and department of state kind of at odds in terms of what they are um presenting as far as yeah. policy or frameworks right yes um so i mean just literally on the 31st of march um just a couple days ago uh they you know this plan is being offered for nicolas maduro to step down and have a transitional council that would govern right until they actually have elections that's right um in order to to lift sanctions uh, and ostensibly provide relief. Now, DOJ, uh, you know, of course, has listed Maduro um, in this indictment. And there's this $50 million reward, right? Is that the appropriate terminology? Reward? Um, yeah, as if you were an old West guns- gunslinger. Yeah, <laughs> price, on, on, price on the head of a, of a uh, argue... <laughs> Of someone who is arguably still the head of state, is there legal the, the good, the bad, for the ugly, and Maduro? <laughs> I like that. What's that? <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly, and Maduro. Which, right, well, which right. Which one is the, he? Is the, he the good, the bad, or the ugly? I don't think he's the good. I think we can rule that out. He could be. A, he he uh, might be all three. <laughs> he's the ugly for sure. Yeah. Well, the four. Yeah. So, what's the legal framework of this? I mean, can you delve into that just briefly? Like, what's the legal framework for actually putting this type of reward on someone who is kind of the de facto head of state? Obviously, we recognize um, other individuals as the transitional heads of state, but what's what's the legal precedence for this? So, that's that's a great question. Maybe Brian can can step in. Maybe he understands this a little bit better. I'm a bit confused by it, so, to be quite honest. Look, the, uh, the indictments are. Sorry, I, go ahead. I you know I think part of the a very important antecedent is what the United States did in Panama in 1989 um, with Manuel Noriega, and that seems to be something that uh, is has perhaps inspired some of the people designing this policy right now. Brian, did, did well, you want to add you know, to that? I was actually going to upend something that, that Mike said earlier. And, and John, I even think you alluded to the direction I'm going to go. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not I'm not terribly convinced, by the way, that 
Department of Justice and Department of State are necessarily at odds with each other. I mean, I, mm. I, I get that uh, the, the, the positions seem contradictory, but, but what if one was meant to, what if one position was meant to make the other position more appealing? In other words, what if the unsealing of the indictment and the bounties on Maduro in his inner circle were designed to intensify pressure ahead of an announcement of a legal framework that would offer some type of off-ramp for, for Maduro? So, again, I, I don't know. I, I raise that only because I don't think you know, uh, Barr and Pompeo are necessarily out of sync. Something leads me to believe that they're probably more in sync than we think. But one could interpret this as an effort to, again, what we've been doing is bluffing uh, with, with the, you know, with the, uh, with the regime in the past. We've seen that. But again, imagine the indictments, you know, ratcheted up the pressure on Maduro and then the framework offered an off-ramp um, you know, if the heat, you know, was too much now, but does he have, so just put this out there. Does he have sufficient mm-hmm. incentives mm-hmm. at this point to take that off ramp, especially if he's still backed by his own military as well as Russia, China, and Cuba? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with this. I, I disagree. I, I think I disagree with Brian respectfully disagree as all our disagreements are <laughs> because I see the indictment as raising the exit costs. Brian. And so for me, a transitional framework proposed and supported by the United States would have made sense more last summer and even eight days ago, but not necessarily after the, the, the indictments were unsealed. But, but the thing is, is that it, in that package, though, there were provisions for amnesty. And so the, the State Department hinted at amnesty in the process. And, and so we don't know what that means yet, because there's not we, we need more details on what the actual proposed framework consists of. There's a lot that's been left out of that. But Department of State absolutely, mm-hmm. in, you know, sort of uh, telegraphed the option for amnesty. And that amnesty could roll over into the um, U.S. indictments as well. And so, you know, could this it? isn't the first time we've proposed an exit, you know, um, we, the, the, the provision of exile was on the table in the past. Um, certainly no incentives to take it there, but, um, you know, again, I, I, it just, I don't know to be, nobody knows except those, those architects of, of the policy and those in the, you know, sort of the, the, you know, the halls of the white house know whether or not this is coordinated or, um, you know, sort of indicative of dysfunction between DOJ and DOS. Um, but again, Pompeo and, and Barr are not, um, you know, they are not, um, you know, intense relations with the president or, you know, they have been following, you know, the White House signals for the most part. So we'll see. Again, I, I don't know. I think you are you are overestimating the coordination of the White House, Brian. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> well, the timing of this also is, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. I was I was about to say questionable, but it's interesting because we do have this global pandemic. Um, I don't think anyone has really good numbers on what's going on with COVID-19 in Venezuela. But this whole indictment reward, um, the DOS proposals, the timing of it has given Maduro a way to sort of attack Trump about attacking Venezuela in order to to um, 
alleviate some of the attention on the handling of COVID-19 in the United States. So now that being true or not, it's just something that he's kind of able to point to, that Maduro is able to point to, given the, the fact that, that everyone's attention is on COVID-19 right now. And, you know, arguably should be. Maybe, but, but okay, one of the things we haven't dug in on is the, you know, sort of the naval exercise going on um, you know, in the Caribbean. And, and if, you, if you want to talk about harmonization or coordination, right, those things don't happen um, overnight, right? That's um, right. And in fact, I, I um, this brought to my attention with, in a conversation with a colleague yesterday that, in fact, um, uh, DOD has gone on the record saying that they were putting together an exercise of this form in the Caribbean um, in the past. And so uh, this this timing um may this is not an exercise around. right it's an operation this is not an exercise i think that's an right. distinction yeah yeah no that's true but but, but uh, that operation was not planned l- last night or last week right well, I mean, that's right th- this operation has been months in the planning and to by the way to conduct it alone it, you had to have months of planning just to get the ships out of the port mm-hmm. but but the point is is that maybe that unsealing of indictment slash um then announcement of a framework oh by the way a day before ship showed up in the caribbean knowing that the ship showing up in the caribbean took months to plan maybe an indication that there's a little bit more um you know planning and coordination going on in a broader uh, we can talk about whether or not it will work that's a completely different conversation but um, but there there may be you know there may be some links to all of this, you know. Well, let's let's go back to what the precedent to all this is. So the indictment is okay. Let's make sure we're getting our numbers yeah. right. So the indict the indictment and the reward is fifty million, right? For Maduro, it's it's ten million for Maduro, for right? Leo, ten million for Tariq Alassami, right? Ten. Uh, 10 million for El Boyo, right? Uh, Carvajal. So yeah, there's a few others in there that uh, that certainly have bounties uh, right. on them as well. So that and the doubling, the number of warships that are that are in the Caribbean Pacific right now or in the region, uh, the precedent to all of this was Panama in the 1980s, right? 1989, yeah. 1989, yeah. Um, so, I mean, those... So go no, ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. ahead. I want to see where you're going with this, John. I mean, uh, 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 Mike, I want to see where you're going with it. <laughs> no, it's just, um, I guess it's kind of interesting that, that you've got this, these, um, this, this proposal for a transition. You've got the, the DOJ indictment. You've got the reward. You've got the warships in the Caribbean and the Pacific. And, and you have uh, basically a, a, a a repeat of certain elements that um, haven't been seen since that since that time since the Panama invasion. So you know, is this sort of a, a replay of that? Is you know, I mean, is this like a, a the you know, are we using the same playbook? Do you kind of see where I'm going with this? Like, it's it's interesting that that we've got two out of several, yeah. But hold on, two hold out on. of Ven- 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 go ahead, go ahead. Different than Panama. Very different. Yes. And, okay. and I've always taken issue with, 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 you know, too much, um, you know, too much emphasis on comparative analysis of those two cases as being similar. Right. I think there's yeah. very different global contexts. 
Uh, these are very different countries with very different capabilities. Um, you know. Well, and very different backings yeah, right. as well. It's an, I mean, it's again. an ahistorical comparison that ignores different geopolitical national contexts, Absolutely. undermines multilateral efforts, raises expectations yes, that like yes. yes, absolutely. So, so uh, you know, I, I, I would be just cautious in raising Panama too much in the conversation, Mike, as if to say there's precedence. Um, Panama uh, is among a long list of countries that the United States uh, intervened militarily. If you want to discuss whether or not the U.S. military will intervene in Venezuela, uh, you, you do that not because uh, it's inspired by Panama, but because it's its own unique calculation. Um, and we can assess whether or not that calculation makes sense. I still don't see a U.S. military intervention on the books at the moment. Now, I can't say what no. will happen if COVID-19 no. wreaks havoc no. um, and you're talking about um, you know, something exponentially worse than the humanitarian crisis that you have going on now, whether or not the U.S. military will intervene. But there could be a scenario in which there is just a complete state collapse and no one is governing and to save lives, um, you know, sort of with under just cause as, as they as they as they uh, uh, sort of uh, understand it may, you know, no, no pun intended. Yeah, it, no pun intended. <laughs> Operation Just Cause in Panama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to bring that up. Um, but, but you get my point. That, that's not in the cards right now. Again, mm -hmm. I, I think that this is. Uh, um, you know, well, I guess I guess one of my points in bringing it up, Brian, is okay. So for the layman or for Venezuelans in Venezuela, how might some of these moves be be interpreted, right? And how might that comparative analysis be taking place in that region or with their I, Cuban I, allies? I have a suggestion for how this know? might be interpreted, Michael. That that there is a general election in the United States in November, and that hardline tactics are a whole lot more attractive to a to a conservative latin population in south florida than uh than negotiations mm. what do you think brian i agree <laughs> you he went to go get coffee <laughs> was can, can i interrupt with one thing michael and then then i promise that i'll get back on, on our timeline i looked of up, course of course go. i looked up the democratic transition framework for venezuela uh, on the State Department website, and I see a number of uh, I, I see a number of uh, points that they make with regards to how things have to change in Venezuela. The guarantees they offer are that high command, military high command, remains in place for the duration of a transitional government, and that state and local authorities remain in place. But it doesn't say anything about national political authorities uh, and it says nothing about amnesty and in fact point 10 of the report says that a truth and reconciliation commission is established with the task of investigating serious acts of violence that occurred since 1999 and reports the nation on the responsibilities of perpetrators and the rehabilitation of victims and their families and talks about what that commission would look like the an adopts amnesty law consistent with venezuela's international obligations covering politically motivated crimes since 1999, except for crimes against humanity. So 
Oof, that's a pretty broad interpretation, though. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'll tell you that the framework is meant as a point of departure, not an end state, okay. right? Okay. In that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to draw a line in the sand. But, but you've got to draw a line in the sand far enough away from, you know, the other, the other uh, you know, the other uh, side. Did I, did I cut out for a second? Okay. You did, you did so cut out for half a second. In and and uh, so I apologize. Apologize to your audience too. So, I mean, again, um, yeah, I mean, the, the point... I it's a, it's a it's a line in the sand. It's a starting point for discussion in the event that uh, that the other side is willing to entertain discussions. But you know, from from uh, from guidance and from lawyers in the past, um, you never you never set the the point of departure anywhere in the middle. You set it as far to one side as the other, so that um, you know uh, any any budging. <laughs> I agree with Brian as he's cutting out i agree with what he says about that. right using the, the transitional framework as a as a point of departure i'll, I'll also add. real quick if you guys swipe on your phones and and put them in um uh the 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 what's what what is it the the do not let calls through mode or whatever it won't affect the recording i'll we'll figure that out uh <laughs> all right so I, I said something a little controversial but and that brian agreed with while he was making coffee uh or whatever uh, which is that maybe these sorts of actions have a domestic electoral goal in mind rather than an international goal. And I, you know, I guess I don't 100% believe that. I'm, I'm saying that kind of to be a little provocative. Uh, but it can be partially true, right, I, that, that that might be one motivation. Listen, um, as much as the administration takes grief, I still think they can chew bubblegum and walk at the same time. Right. Uh, yeah. They're bumping into a lot of walls along the way. And that's OK. It's a different assessment, different podcast. But I have no doubt that. Wing is serving multiple policy objectives, both domestically, domestic and international. Right. Um, and that's why I right. think that the point of departure can't make it appear as if the U.S. is conceding too much territory here either. Right. Because that would just look poor. Um, and, and, I mean, and, and if you, if you track the Twitter accounts of, you know, many of our South Florida delegation, they have been very hard, um, on Maduro, uh, asserting that he has to pay, you know, for his crimes. Now, I think John and I could probably agree. Um, well, I'll let John, I'll let John make a statement on it, but I don't think Maduro is going to leave unless there are amnesty provisions, right? There, they, I don't see anything that can incentivize him, right? To inherit that will get him no way. out yeah. of power without amnesty. Right. And I think everybody knows that. Well, again, he enjoys he enjoys pretty significant bashing. I mean, the countries that we've listed plus the military. I mean, unless there are incentives that do end up being offered, I don't I don't see there is as there that there's going to be much movement of of him or his government. Well, I mean, look, these other countries are, are struggling, too. Right. So I get that he's got support and he's had support for the last year and a few months, you know, since, uh, you know, sort of since the, the, the you know, the current. Uh, um, you know, political crisis has been going on. And I, I say that reference to, you know, Maduro and Guaido and the emergence of, of uh, you know, another, another uh, government. But, but look, uh, you know, China's got its hands full with its own 
um, you know, its own crisis around the pandemic and, and the economic effects that's, that that's, uh, you know, hurting them. Uh, Russia is uh, also in trouble and it's dealing with its, its stuff too. And so whether or not those countries are going to come to the, you know, immediate backing, I think there's some, some, some fissures there. There's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a window here in which those countries are also very much well, occupied. Um, also, so Rosneft out from underneath operations of Venezuela, despite the fact that it's really now the Russian government that owns Russia's operations. Um, all they did was dislodge Ros- Rosneft. That's and a colleague of mine said that's not an Igor Session thing. That's a Vladimir Putin uh, decision. Um, and so we'll have to see what that means for Russia's equity on the ground. Um, but it's definitely they've made some changes there too. So, so Brian, your best guess, looking into your into your crystal ball, are you thinking that these these Venezuelan allies, as it were, that some of that allyship might unravel a bit, given the current situation with COVID nineteen and some of the other things that they're facing? Unravel, I'd say maybe weaken in terms of priority, right? Uh, Maybe maybe it's uh, you know if, if 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 you know Russia or China have to make some decisions in prioritization of foreign policy. You know, I'm not sure Venezuela is going to be up there. I mean, look, look at look at what Russia's uh, contributed with the with the decline in oil prices. Doesn't that give a sense that uh, Venezuela is not incredibly high on its on its priority list? Because one of the biggest uh, you know um, you know victims of the price war is Venezuela. So right. again, I, I think that that you know it's it, it's an interesting time in which those those supporters are, are somewhat weakened. How weak, I don't know, but they're weakened for sure. So I think that this might be an appropriate segue with what, what time we have left. For me to say that I think a far greater threat to Nicolas Maduro's survival is not any pressure from the United States or indeed from any actor, but rather his own incompetence and his government's uh, lack of responsiveness to coronavirus. Yeah, so I agree with that. Um, but I will tell you something. I had an opportunity to talk to, to Anatoly Kermanov last week. You know, he's a New York Times reporter on the ground. And he says that he believes Maduro um, actually has acted pretty quick with respect to trying to um, mitigate the potential spread of coronavirus. And in fact, some of the things that he's observed include, you know, shoring up Caracas, right? Right. Um, so making those investments in in Caracas to, you know, kind of keep, you know, some of the most important uh, constituents, um, you know, uh, under control and that they've asserted, you know, some pretty repressive measures to try to stop the spread. So it's possible that, you know, given the authorities that Maduro has exercised, uh, in very repressive form that, you know, maybe you're not going to, ex- you're not going to see those kinds of effects that people are thinking um, for a country with no government, right? Sort of weak institutions. So, so this is true, but I, th- I think both those well, things can be true, Brian, right? Yeah, you're Maduro, right, you're right. Maduro expanded the, the social forms to He demanded that businesses close and residents remain in their homes, right? I think this is really early in terms of the response in comparison to Ortega or AMLO or Bolsonaro in other countries. Uh, that being said, despite whatever measures he takes, he 
is the one who is at least partially responsible for the incredibly low level of state capacity and the 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 weak public health response, the weak capacity of health services to respond to this crisis, right? So maybe his maybe his response in the moment is responsible, but he's the one who allowed the system to erode and decay in the I first agree. place. I agree. Right. So even with a small number of cases, I mean, I'm looking at the number of cases that they have confirmed, active, and recuperated, and supposedly. They've only had 144 confirmed cases, 100 active cases, and 41 cases that were that recuperated. Right? If you believe um, numbers, then I have some. Only, I have some Chinese numbers to show you. <laughs> I I don't believe the numbers. I'm just I would I mean I would be shocked considering the state of their their healthcare system currently. Um, but supposedly they've only had three deaths, so their mortality rate is on par with the rest of the world at two percent. Um, but again, only 144 cases, which would be incredible. Um, but then again, you haven't had a surge of cases in much of the Latin America region outside of, I think, Brazil so and a few others. The, the, the canary so, in the coal mine is Guayaquil, Ecuador. Guayaquil has had more deaths, I believe, than, than most countries in the region. Uh, bodies are now uh-huh. being, cadavers are being left out because people are afraid to bury them or attend funerals. And uh, casket makers are closing down and saying that they've run out of caskets, right? Guayaquil is a hot, muggy city with poor health infrastructure. If things in Guayaquil are spiraling out of control as much as they are, I greatly fear for the slums of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, and I fear for Petare and everywhere else in tropical Latin America. Now, for any of our listeners that don't know where Guayaquil is. That's on the Ecuadorian coast. Yeah, it's Ecuador's largest city. Okay. Um, Do we know where most of the cases have been in Venezuela specically? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Around Caracas. Although Efecto Cocuyo, which is uh, a local media outlet, they they show that the the first case they trace to to late February in Barinas, which is a state in the Llanos, in the plains of, I mean, I guess you'd call it south-central Venezuela, Barinas. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think that that shows, hey, it's possible that this thing isn't just in the urban areas. It might be in rural areas. And because the lack of communi- communications infrastructure, and all infrastructure, to be quite honest, might mean that there, there are right. dozens, hundreds, thousands of unreported cases. So do we know, so I'm, I'm actually looking right now at the UNHCR and their response, their healthcare response to, um, to this in Venezuela. Do, do we have any other organizations that are responding to this in Venezuela besides uh, the government um, that are, are specifically ramping up operations because of COVID-19 <laughs> in Venezuela that you guys know of? Well, Juan, that kind of well I'll say Juan Guaido. <laughs> Not Maduro, but Guaido is working with Inter-American Development Bank and I believe the Pan-American Health uh, Organization to secure humanitarian aid. Okay. But again, Guaido is, is not kind of the de facto president of the country. 
the person exercising power is Nicolas Maduro. Well, and then who's the person exercising whatever budget that's right. Venezuela actually has? Is the next, you know, that's the other question too. I mean, we can we can work with who we want to all we want, but at the end of the day, to move resources or personnel, that requires, um, well, capital. Um, what else? What else should we go over while we're on our on our on our? I think uh, Brian's time might have run out. I'm not sure if he has any any uh, minutes left for us. No, my, my time has run out, uh, and I've already gotten pinged about whether or not I'm jumping on this other uh, Zoom call. Um, but it's been a fun discussion. And, I, you know, look, um, still a very tough road ahead, um, however it goes. And, you know, ultimately, I agree with everything John says, except the things I don't. And so... <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm kidding. This has been great. And so uh, thank you, uh, Mike, for, for setting this up and allowing me to, to be a part of it. Absolutely. We'll circle back. I always love having you guys on. John, any final thoughts? before? I'm worried for Venezuela off? the way I am worried about the United States and Latin America and the whole world, to be quite to be quite honest. And I'm just hoping for a miraculous recovery for everyone and for those of us who are healthy to stay self-quarantined and safe to protect ourselves and others here, here. Absolutely. All right. Excellent. All right, guys, stay safe, stay home, I guess. Um, All don't right. do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks, Take care, guys. guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Latin American intersections. If you enjoy our podcast or find it insightful, please be sure to share with your friends and colleagues. Hasta la próxima. See you next time. A big thank you to Kasim Sultan of Sad Boy Music, who is working diligently to improve our audio as we develop our production techniques. Sad Boy Music offers competitive rates for recording, editing, mixing, mastering, music production, video editing, and motion graphic design. You can follow Sad Boy Music on social media at 5ADB0iMusic.